I describe that as presence. I describe it as different than like just be present or just be mindful, but this this way of being that only comes when we've unburdened ourselves from the the judgments, the masks, the walls of guarding that keep us from accessing the fullness of our experience and keep us from uh, accessing all that there is to experience in the world, ourselves and outside of ourselves. And to me, that was that was inspiring, moving toward this deep sense of wholeness and experiencing all life in its various forms and its multitudes. Uh, and what is required to do that? What is the journey toward that? Welcome to The Courageous Life, a podcast founded on the idea that taking risks, overcoming fears, and moving beyond the limits of our comfort zones are prerequisites for living meaningful and fulfilling lives. I'm your host, Joshua Steinfeld, and it's my mission to explore insights, practical strategies, and inspiring stories of everyday heroes that will empower more people to grow courage and awaken greatness. Welcome to the second episode of season two of The Courageous Life. Last week, we kicked things off in a big way with a conversation about wholeness and living an authentic life with Parker Palmer. I'd highly encourage you to go back and check out that conversation if you're interested in the topic. And I'm really excited for today's guest, not only because he's the first repeat guest I've had on the show. You can actually go back and check out our first conversation in episode five, but also because the conversation today continues along a similar theme. Corey Mascara has a new book out titled Stop Missing Your Life, How to Be Deeply Present in an Unpresent World. I had a chance to read an advanced copy of this book, and if you are at all interested in cultivating qualities of presence with others, with yourself, or generally with the world around you, and living a more meaningful life, I'd highly encourage you to go out and pick up this book. In our conversation today, Corey and I will get deep into the topic of presence. We'll talk about what gets in the way of presence and the four pillars that Corey outlines as being fundamental to building more presence in one's life. We'll also talk about Corey's journey in writing the book, his insights about the creative process and how to overcome some of the challenges that can arise. And Corey and I will get practical. We'll discuss some of his ideas about how to begin building a meditation practice, whether you're just getting started or you're wanting to grow or deepen your practice this year. Corey offers a lot of insights and takeaways in this episode. And if you'd like to learn more about the book or his work after listening, you can always check out Stop Missing Your Life. As always, I've put together show notes for this episode, which you can find at www.joshuasteinfeld.com forward slash podcast. All right, to give you a little bit more background on Corey for those who are unfamiliar with his work, Corey Mascara is an international speaker and teacher on the topics of presence and well being. He's taught mindfulness based leadership at Columbia University and currently serves as an instructor of positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, where he completed his graduate work. In 2012, Corey spent six months in silence, living as a monk in Burma, meditating 14 to 20 hours each day under the instruction of the late Sayada U Pandita. A frequent guest on the Dr. Oz show, he now aims to bring these teachings to people in a practical and relatable way. 
presenting to schools, organizations, and healthcare systems, as well as through workshops and retreats for the general public. Corey's meditations have been heard more than 10 million times in over 50 countries. And again, he looks forward to connecting with you through his first book, Stop Missing Your Life, How to Be Deeply Present in an Unpresent World. Okay, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this second conversation with Corey Mascara. Corey, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Josh. You are the first uh, repeat guest we've had on The Courageous Life. I think at this point we have about 40 episodes, and uh, you're the first one who's come back. So thanks for coming back. You're welcome. I have to say, I do feel honored. I'm really excited to have this conversation. I just finished uh, reading an advanced copy of your book, and um, I know it took you you know, quite some time to go through the, the journey of you know, getting this book out there. And, uh, and it's beautifully written. It's practical. Um, I love that your personality comes out in it from knowing you. And uh, it's funny. And I think people are really going to enjoy it. So very well done. You're on the show before. So you know that the way The Courageous Life always starts is I always ask people a question of, of whether or not there was an adversity or a challenge that you faced uh, somewhere along the path that sort of influenced your trajectory of what you're doing professionally today. And I was thinking about this, and since this is the first repeat interview, that question is not necessarily appropriate. Um, but then I was like, I don't really want to let this guy off the hook. <laughs> so I know from conversations with you over the past couple years that actually going through this process of writing the book brought up its own series of challenges, mm-hmm. right, in many different forms. Mm-hmm. So I think as a way into this conversation and as a thread, as we get to the topic of the book and talking about presence and being present to your life, Maybe we can start with just your journey, some of the challenges you faced along the path of, of writing. Yeah, great access point. Um, I am still processing and integrating the last year and a half, two years of this book writing process. It challenged me and stretched me into corners of my humanness that I had not been before. And it was very difficult, uh, painful, at times, which is weird because we're talking about writing a book. This is like total first world problems in, in one respect. But in another respect, I think anyone that's endeavored into the creative world, which is most people, but really like pouring your heart into something, a message and trying to get it right, knows that it's not as simple as just showing up at the computer and typing or showing up at the canvas and choosing colors. Like you have to connect to something deeper. and this book marked a marked a transition in my teaching career, right? So I've been teaching mindfulness meditation since I was about uh, 21, and I'm I'll be 30 soon. And so the first uh, the first seven years of my teaching were pretty basic mindfulness. Not not that mindfulness is basic, but um, I could have written that book very easily in a short period of time. And there's been a part of me in the last four or five years that has slowly been exploring other dimensions of what it means to be in relationship to being human, that 
don't necessarily fall in the category of mindfulness meditation or weren't part of those trainings. And there's just been a, a big question of like, what does it mean to live well in the world outside of a monastery? It was very clear when I was in a monastery, just meditate all day long and you can reduce the fetters of mind that create the conditions for suffering. And when you could develop deep concentration and awareness, you really can reach profound levels of equanimity and peace. But when I came back from the monastery, it was just clear that I, I couldn't meditate 14 hours a day. And meditating a couple hours a day would, would be massive. And so there's been this whole learning process of just what is it that I'm teaching? And when I finally sat down to write a book about that, it was a much bigger challenge than than I anticipated and really caused me to go deep into uh, what is my message. So why why was that difficult? Well, the initial book that I sold to the publisher, that me and my agent sold to the publisher, was very different than what the book ended up being. And the most difficult part of the process, I think, was having so many people that had a stake in the book, that were invested in the book from... Um, uh, obviously, there's me, there's the publisher, there's the editor, there's my agent, uh, there's my partner, there and anyone else that's ever known me that maybe I'm running questions by. All of these people want to see it do well, um, and everyone has their own opinion, and uh, especially the relationship between me and the publisher of kind of the book that we initially set out to and the book that started to evolve within me as I was going through it. There was a lot of struggle, uh, a lot of struggle there, and I got to this place of not knowing um, what to trust in me. So specifically, there would be time <laughs> I would I would write a chapter and I was like, man, this chapter is gold. And I'd send it to my editor and he'd be like, yeah, we should, we should probably cut that. <laughs> or like, that's not working. And I would just, man, it would be, it'd be awful. But I was like, all right, cool. This is just a process. Go back through it. And then I'd, I'd go through something that I'd write in a day, like multiple pages, almost a chapter in a well, not a full chapter today, but a lot within a day. And I'm like, oh, this is terrible. And I'd send it off and everyone would be like, this is it. This is awesome. And I, I was just like, everyone kept saying, trust your gut with this right from your heart. And there were times where I did where it wasn't good and times where I didn't where it was good. And um, it was just the war of art in many ways, as Stephen Pressfield would say, uh, where uh, it was confusing, chaotic, vulnerable, painful, brought up insecurities around my writing, what I'm teaching, what to trust, how to trust it. The main the main takeaway was that it uh it tenderized me in many ways and gave me a lot of respect for anyone that has sought to try and communicate something meaningful to them uh in in a significant way in the world. Uh, and just how difficult that is and when you're trying to get it right and feeling like you can't I think from from day one of this show, one of the focuses for me or intentions has been um, moving away from the sexy overnight success story to pull back the curtain and look at the journey and the details and the messiness of the process that you're describing. And I think people along the way have shared what's behind the quote unquote metaphorical curtain, right? And I, and I think it's really valuable. I want to I want to read a, a quote from the book here um, in talking about presence. You say, presence is more than simply being aware of the moment. It's bringing our full selves into the moment and the fullness of the moment to ourselves. And I just love that. And I thought, you know, as we 
kind of dive into the book, um, this could be a, a little bit of a uh, entry point, but let's relate it to your kind of journey around writing here. And maybe we can talk about, were you able to cultivate or be present in the way that you're describing presence is here during the writing process? So that's kind of one, were you able to do that? I imagine it ebbed and flowed probably. And two, let's get practical about when blockers to that sort of presence showed up for you or things that got in the way. What are maybe one or two examples of practices that allowed you to access presence again or come back to being present? The the book writing process was uh, was like a meditation in itself, like a, re, a long retreat in itself. And anyone that's been on a retreat or even just has experienced uh, a, a meditation practice where maybe you sit for a half an hour, 45 minutes, you sometimes come out of that experience and something in you feels more open, more soft, or you feel more grounded. Sometimes you feel more confident, energized. Other times you feel a little bit more subdued and in touch. Uh, there were many times throughout where I would be writing and then I, I'd step outside and go for a walk and I just felt soft. I felt open. I felt compassionate. I felt caring. I felt connected to the people around me. Hadn't done any meditation, was just going through this book writing process. And I say that because right, this idea of presence being um, bringing more of ourselves to the moment and more of the moment to ourselves, people could hear what I'm saying and go, well, like this he he went through this terrible process with the book. Doesn't sound like he's practicing what he's preaching. Like it sounds like he was suffering. Isn't isn't uh, all this stuff about not suffering so much, not experiencing so much stress? Um, maybe maybe there's uh, a time in this lifetime where I will be able to go through experiences and not experience the suffering uh, or all those dimensions of my humanness. But right now they're they're here, and I think it's very easy for mindfulness practitioners, meditation practitioners to say, oh, that's not the path and sort of either spiritually bypass, which we could talk about later, or kind of numb themselves to those experiences or just focus on what is positive. And I really wanted to embrace the full experience. I talked to I talked to my mentor. I know I'm meandering, but we're going to get back to something. I talked to one of my mentors prior to that the book writing process and was telling her, I just felt like things were, things had been relatively good in my life the last few years there was no big suffering pain tragedy and it's not like I was asking for some sort of suffering but uh, there was some sort of like wanting to be challenged in some way and then then this process came into my life and a whole host of other things along the way and I wanted to feel all of it so the discomfort of going through that process uh, when I felt vulnerable and insecure, instead of saying, oh, a mindfulness person doesn't feel these things or even coming back to the breath, I actually made space for that in my experience and be like, whoa, what is what is this dimension of uh, my humanness? Like I haven't experienced this in a very, this like deep insecurity or, oh, wow, this other thing, like I'm so confused. I don't know what to trust. I don't know who to trust. I don't know what voice in me is ego, is truth, is heart. Like I can't parse through any of it. And I would just sit back and feel that, the pain of it. And just because I sat back and felt it with awareness doesn't mean that it, it wasn't extremely painful. Um, and I, I, I let it sink in and move through me, not sink in where it would get lodged, but just made space for that, that part of me. And that's where the tenderizing happened. Like all of these walls that I might have accumulated over a course of a lifetime that prevent me from feeling certain things or accessing certain emotions 
those got chipped away at in a significant way by giving myself permission to experience these things. So I talk about all the the pain and, and the suffering, which is still crazy. Like for those rolling your eyes, like he's just he just wrote a book. Why is he talking about? I know, I get it. It sounds ridiculous, and I can't describe it any other way than I am, and that it was hard. But going that difficulty, I came out of it, and I felt more awake to put a Buddhist term on it. I felt like I had more access to myself. I felt more whole. I felt more loving, compassionate, kind, um, connected. And I'm so grateful for going through, through, through that and giving myself permission to go through that. And that's a, is a huge argument I'm making in the book about presence, that it's not just you know, be aware or focus on the breath. Um, it's really making space for the fullness, the the multitudes within you that Walt Whitman talked about, um, and getting to explore and become curious about those, so that we can move toward toward greater wholeness. So there's a dimension of this that is allowing whatever experience is arising to happen and to fully experience it, to be present fully with it. Um, and bring ourselves to that moment, as you described, as fully as we can. And if I could just say a quick thing on that, is that uh, one, that's it's a nice idea, right? It's one thing to have that mindset to bring ourselves, I'm just going to experience everything in my life. And then it's another thing where you actually have to meet it. And uh, sometimes that's incredibly scary and we just decide not to. Um, but other times we we literally might not have trained our nervous system to stay present and grounded enough through that uh, or stay grounded enough in the midst of chaos, complexity, confusion, and the traumas of life to stay present to it. And we reflexively turn away. And I think this is what we have a lot of in our world, um, nervous systems that that haven't necessarily been trained to hold the bigness of life. And that's that's not a, a jab against anyone. Um, life is hard and that all influences like what we can hold and the book argues that we can train ourselves to hold more and more and more it's basically been the entire theme of this show is like what are the practices to train exactly what you're describing um and so that's that's where that second question kind of comes in which is is there a moment maybe that came to mind as you're describing this long you know multiple year journey of writing the book but a particular moment that stands out in your mind where maybe self-doubt was really present or your inner critic was really strong or you know something a lot imposter syndrome might have been there something was just arising and what did you actually do because people might be saying like you're saying this is a nice idea to be really present easier said than done what's an actual concrete practice that maybe if i'm experiencing something like that i might be able to go out and try yeah the the concrete practice that I would offer is more of a mindset shift. And in those moments of extreme doubt and wondering what am I doing and not seeing an end to it and not getting anywhere that I want to get with it, in those moments, I would just say, just show up for the process. Just show up for the process. And it if anyone's ever listened to Elizabeth Gilbert's TED Talk on creativity, uh, it speaks to this beautifully. And if you haven't, I totally recommend checking that out. I actually <laughs> kind of forget what specifically she's talking about, but this idea that creativity is something that often moves through us. And the best we can do is just show up for it and like 
that's our job, right? I did the work to show up. Now, if, if the creativity is going to come through, if the book is going to come through, then great. But there's nothing more that I can do than to be here and to see this process through. And that's what I would do in those moments. I was like, all right, I'm here. I feel the tension around it. The, the tension would be a gripping in my hands and my shoulders and my belly, like wanting to get it right. Why can't I get this right? And uh, then feeling despair is like, I'm not going to get this. And I would just soften, relax, and, and go, just show up, just stay, just stay with the process. In the days waking up where I, it just felt insurmountable, that's when I would say just show up. In those moments where it was really extreme and uh, I would feel that tension and not know where to go with it, that's when I would actually take, take a break. The most practical thing was I'd, I'd just go outside, I'd walk around, I'd reconnect to people, uh, I'd actually do things to reinforce a sense of ego, um, which is a, a controversial word. But um, when you're doing something that challenges your sense of ego so strongly, and by ego, I just mean your sense of self and who you believe yourself to be and what you're good at, what you're not good at. It's good to help balance that with um, maybe having a good conversation that goes smoothly or teaching a class where you feel more in your element. And so I would do some of those things to be like, oh, yeah, I, I'm still a human being. Like I could still kind of do this stuff. And that would allow me to reconnect back into the difficulty of the process. But but diving full in on in it and just staying with the pain of that, the uncertainty of it constantly in the same way that um, that can create trauma for people like too much, too soon, too fast. I think that's it's important to pendulate into those creative endeavors in that way and give yourself the opportunity to, to step out. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, um, let's kind of dive into a question, which is around just your motivation for the book. So you talk a little bit about this, I think, in the backstory in the book, so people can look forward to that. But I'm I'm really curious about the question of why now, like why why this topic, why now? You could have you know you've had so many different experiences. You've had an experience living as a monk in Burma. You've studied at the University of Pennsylvania. You've taught there around positive psychology. You've done teaching all over the United States, internationally, so on and so forth. Out of all of the things that you could have written on or talked about why this and is there a particular reason at this point in time that you felt that this was really important it took until the end of the book when i submitted it for me to realize oh i was writing this book for myself <laughs> i feel like a lot of people say that about their projects uh, but i didn't think i would be one of them when i came back from Burma. For those that are listening and not sure what I'm referencing when I say Burma, in 2012, I spent uh, a chunk of time in Southeast Asia, did an extended silent meditation retreat, um, and spent some time ordained as a monk. And there was just a very clear idea of what enlightenment looks like in that context. And I came back into the real world after that. And my ideas of enlightenment were challenged or what could be attainable outside of a monastic setting. And the big challenge for me in both my personal life and my teaching has been how to bridge the depth of uh, insight, wisdom that I got to touch in 
the monastic setting with the real world where there are money concerns, where there's social media, where there are relationships, specifically relationships, right? You don't, they don't teach you much about that when you're in silence. And you'd never go to a monk for relationship advice or marriage advice. So like, there were so many things I had to navigate in the world that I didn't learn in the monastery. And the big thing was, what am I, what am I working toward? What, what is the happiness? What's the end point? Is it just like get a little less stressed? Is that what I'm working toward? Is it have a little bit more purpose in my life? Is that what I'm working toward? And I wasn't satisfied with any of that. There was nothing in that. What inspired me was total liberation from suffering, <laughs> which is the Buddhist uh, promise. Uh, you do these practices and you can actually uproot conditionings in the mind that lead to suffering. But I didn't see how that could be possible in the fullest extent in the real world. Might still be, but I'm not sure. So I wanted to figure out what is inspiring for me, a way to live in the world that takes perhaps some of the essence of what I got to touch into there and also acknowledges the reality of the real world, the the beauty of connection, of love, of sexuality, um, of pain, of death. I wanted something that I was inspired to live into a deep and deep and an actual way of being that I could wake up and feel like, oh, I'm working toward this. And I would be willing to endure some pain to get closer to this. And in the book, I describe that as presence. I describe it as different than like just be present or just be mindful, but this this way of being that only comes when we've unburdened ourselves from the the judgments, the masks, the walls of guarding that keep us from accessing the fullness of our experience and keep us from uh, accessing all that there is to experience in the world, ourselves and outside of ourselves. And to me, that was that was inspiring, moving toward this deep sense of wholeness and experiencing all life in its, in its various forms and its multitudes. Uh, and what is required to do that? What is the journey toward that? And that's what, that's what the book was intended to do. There's so many different things I could pull out there and we could explore. Um, my, my curiosity goes to, I think maybe as a starting point, you offered a definition of presence there and kind of what it is, what you're really talking about, not just these bumper stickers about just being in the moment. You know, it's, there's much more to it than that. And I think maybe before we talk about building presence, which I'd like to get to and the, and the practical kind of framework that you offer for doing that, the different facets of that, maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the things that you see as being the biggest barriers in the modern world. You were just talking about coming back and the, the real challenges that we all face around technology, the pace of life today, relationships that we're in, right? And how do we, like, what are some of those common barriers? And then how do we begin to work with those and, and build presence into this rapid, fast-paced kind of life that so many of us are experiencing these days? On one level, there's nothing that's a barrier to presence. We can drop in and bring a deep quality of presence to anything that we're experiencing including walls of, of guarding, right? So let's say we don't have access to an emotion of sadness, but we feel the wall that comes up that kind of like prevents us from feeling sadness. Well, even though we might not be fully embodying the experience of sadness as a dimension of ourselves, we can fully embody the experience of the wall and the numbness and show up fully for that uh, and hold that. And so in that way, 
there are not going to be experiences that prevent us from accessing presence. It's more how we relate to anything um, that shows up in our moment-to-moment experience. But the things that prevent us from showing up in that way are often this very fast-paced culture that we're in that that keeps us in more of a superficial mind and chasing the next uh, dangling carrot, the next shiny light. When we're very fast-paced, it's it's hard to catch the many dimensions of our experience, the the subtleties of our trauma patterns, our conditionings, our emotions. Easy to gloss over those, move move on to the next thing, and get into what I call like a, a horizontal relationship to life. Like I'm here. If this you can't see what I'm doing with my hand, but if it were a flat floor, right, the my hand is here, and I'm moving further along that plane in another direction, like changing my life. The presence is more about having a vertical relationship to your life. I'm, I'm here. How can I get more here? How can I experience more of what's here? And it turns out that experiencing more of what's here ends up taking care of what's going to happen uh, in the future because the future doesn't exist anywhere other than in the present moment. So the more that we can take care of this moment, the more we actually take care of the next moment and the next moment and the next moment. So presence is a bit of a, a, an ori- a reorientation to our lives. Uh, from this horizontal plane to more of a vertical plane. And when we're moving very quickly, it's just hard to to step out of that. So technology, these become impediments, uh, and the various traumas of life that have accumulated over the course of a lifetime that have caused us to feel unsafe in the present moment, to not be connected to our bodies, to not want to be connected to our bodies, um, to be afraid of our thoughts, to not feel safe just in ourselves and in our world. All of those can create an overall mindset and uh, felt sense in the nervous system that uh, I shouldn't be still, I shouldn't drop in, I shouldn't uh, connect to what's here. And uh, just because there's been trauma doesn't mean that we can't be present, but it can create this low-grade fear or, or anxiety to drop a little deeper into our experience. One of the things I appreciated about the book were the first couple chapters and just the acknowledgement that being human can be challenging, right? For a variety of different reasons. And we don't have to dive deep into that. But, you know, you go into talking about trauma and addressing that. And you talk a lot about protection, self-protection, and how that takes shape in life. And that when we experience, as you're describing, certain things that are painful, we're afraid if we've been through something traumatic, something's uncomfortable, so on and so forth, natural reaction is to move away from it, protect ourselves, fight, whatever it might be, right? And I think for me, what you're describing throughout the book, this ability to bring our our whole self eventually, right? To get to the point where I can bring all the different aspects of who I am to whatever is arising right now, right now in this moment, um, and to allow this moment to fully enter and integrate into who I am and for me to experience that can take a sense of courage because it can be really difficult. And I, I think um, I have another kind of quote from the book that I just is so resonated with. And one of the questions that I've been fascinated by on the show, as you know, is actually twofold. The first is how can we create conditions that enable or foster a sense of courage? So that's kind of one piece of it. And the second question that I've been exploring more broadly is, how can we do that for other people? How can I create the conditions that will allow you to be courageous and move toward what matters to you? And so under that frame, there's a quote you talk about safety. 
and I've talked about safety a lot with a lot of different people on this on the show. It's emerged as a pattern. But you say internal safety is developed by building the psychological, emotional, and spiritual resources that enable us to meet, hold, and stay present to the fullness of our life, including the worst parts of it, and still know that we're okay. And I just love that. And I think that's a, if we're talking about building presence, can we talk about this without talking about safety? No. No, we we can't. And the title of that section of the book is called uh, Safety, the Lynchpin of Presence. And I think it's a, a missing link um, or a missing part of the conversation when in this whole age of be present or just be mindful. And granted, there are a lot of really exceptional teachers that acknowledge the, the need for safety. But if we don't feel safe to experience and experience for whatever reason, we're not going to. And so how do we build those inner resources to experience safety, right? So ex- there's external safety, and this is safety that people can create for ourselves. So you could think of a therapist and how a therapist creates a se- sense of safety for you to experience more parts of yourself, to access certain emotions, to share things you might not otherwise share. You could see how uh, a classroom could be safe for a student to take risks, to try something and fail and to feel okay doing that and to express themselves and you could also see where that goes wrong. And we're seeing that in a big way in, in our country with many different populations of people that don't feel safe to express um, their particular truth and their way of being and their identity. So that the external, I, I really wanted to make the argument in that section. And there's only, unless you're writing a whole book on that topic, uh, the role of what community and the external variables play in our own safety, uh, it's hard to build that out in this kind of book, which is like, what can you do for yourself? But I did want to make the argument that we can't dismiss the role that other people play in us being able to show up as our full selves. In fact, I, I don't think we can move all the way toward the deepest presence uh, without uh, other people's influence um, or without those conditions created by other people just because we're so deeply wired for connection um, and love from others and to take other people's opinions of us seriously. We could get caught up in the whole personal development stuff of like, we shouldn't care what other people think. I have yet to meet anyone that falls in that category, especially when you start getting into like intimate relationships and friendships. So uh, I wanted to make that argument that that safety can be created externally. But there are still examples of people that feel that create a sense of safety for themselves to show up in the world fully as they are and experience the many aspects of themselves and say, like, this is who I am with almost like a take it or leave it mentality. And I think there's something beautiful in that. And that can only happen when we've built the inner resources to hold the potential pain that we might experience in doing that. Like it's the chapter two is titled the risk of being you. There's a risk to being authentic because if, if uh, our, uh, what's authentic to us doesn't jive with what someone else wants for us, we might have to experience the, the pain of that social isolation. And so once we build up uh, enough of the inner resources and uh, sense of strength within ourselves and capacity to feel the discomfort of that so- social isolation, but still feel grounded enough in who we are at our core to say, no, this is me and I'm going to stand by this. That takes courage. Uh, that that takes a nervous system that can be with some discomfort and fear and not shut down. And that can get developed through a meditation practice. Uh, I talk a lot about the different ways to develop those resources throughout the book. So 
all to say, right, external safety and and internal safety and internal safety is something that we can start to build for ourselves. And that's uh, meditation has been used for millennia to actually do that, where we can experience the, the fullness of our experience uh, and feel safe in our own minds and our own bodies. So maybe let's give um, people a little bit of a sneak preview of what's in the book. I mean, I know we've been doing that, but I think there's a framework that you use because this essentially is the entire argument of the book as you talk about building these resources. But maybe you could offer this acronym that you talk about throughout the book. And I'd love specifically to dive into curiosity a little bit later in the show. Just been another theme um, throughout the show. So yeah, walk us through the FACE acronym, kind of why these pieces, how this ties into presence, and then maybe we can riff on curiosity a little bit. Yeah, so I it felt important to create a framework that people uh, could connect to uh, and deepen into as a way to understand presence. And the way I came up with it, there are four pillars to it, which I'll explain in a moment, but the way I came up with it was spending a lot of time in both my meditation practice and in moments throughout my day feeling into like, what is this quality of presence I'm, I'm talking about? And when I, when I really feel that I'm in it and when I sense that other people are in it, what, what are the elements that come up? And four arose out of that. Uh, it was focus, allowing, curiosity, and embodiment. So having focus, allowing the moment to be as it is, being curious about this experience and f- experiencing it fully both in the mind and in the body. And so we, we, could, we could feel, we could connect to that even, even right now. Like for anyone that's listening, you could drop in for a moment and just start to, to sense those four elements, right? So focus this capacity to be attuned to the present moment and not be wandering off totally in the past or the future, but actually be right here, some stability of mind, right? So the mind starts to settle, focus, allowing. This is giving ourselves permission to be human, that there's going to be a lot that comes up in any moment. There might be pain. There might be a lot of joy. Can we give ourselves permission to experience and allow pleasure when it's here and also pain while it's here without shutting down? So allowing. Um, Curiosity. Curiosity is the thing that pulls us closer to our moment. It's the opposite of fear, as I describe it. Um, and so as we become curious, we lean in a little bit. Oh, what is this moment like? So we're, we're dropping in a little bit more deeply. And then embodiment. This stuff is not purely happening in the mind. We can't access the present moment without our bodies. And until we're angels and heavenly beings and we don't have bodies anymore... If we're to experience this human life in this human form, it's going to be through the experience of a body, whether that's sight, uh, sound, anything we're taking through the senses, but specifically like sensational experience. And so when those four come together, we're, we're here, we're fully here, we're, we're showing up for all of it, not, not turning away. Um, and we can deepen each of those pillars individually and we can deepen them collectively. And as we we deepen them as a unit. We're more and more equipped to be with more and more aspects of our experience. For my own kind of self-interest, I'm going to like... Um dive into this curiosity topic. This has been something I've been fascinated by and for a number of reasons. One is a lot of this show has actually focused on how do we 
how do we um, stay in a place where we're not shutting down to, I think you would describe in your book, shutting down to life um, or shutting down in a conversation or um, as we get triggered around something or in a heated debate about something or somebody says something we fundamentally disagree with? How do we stay open? How do we stay present, you know, in your words? How do we stay connected? How do we continue to learn, right? When it can be, at least in my experience, just speaking for myself, easy to just shut off, walk away, change the channel, whatever. That's not necessarily an engaged way of being for me, just describing my own experience. So it's kind of been a... um, kind of some me search, right, on the show of a question, how do we stay open? And curiosity just keeps coming up. One of the things that shuts us down is fear. And I loved this section on curiosity where you say, courage is not the opposite of fear. Why is curiosity the opposite of fear? Share a little bit about that. I'm curious about that. That one came to me, uh, It was like a spontaneous insight as I was working on curiosity. And I challenged it for a while because we often think of things like curiosity as the opposite of fear or even love as the opposite of fear. But when you feel into a moment of fear, there's a withdrawing. Fear causes us to want to turn away from the moment. So what's the opposite of that? Turning toward. Curiosity brings us toward. Fear presupposes that there's danger. Curiosity presupposes that it's safe. Fear causes us to shut down. Curiosity causes us to open up and expand. So just every element of fear, the the opposite falls into at least what curiosity is pointing toward. And I think the first place it came up for me was when I was thinking about how I work with people that are dealing with chronic pain. And there's such a strong conditioning uh, to not be with the pain, to 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 feel the fear of the pain. And they might not put those words to it, but there's something going on in the brain that fears being with the pain. And it's very interesting when you offer someone that's been in chronic pain the the invitation to just become a little bit more curious about the pain. Well, immediately there's, it's almost as if the experience of curiosity presupposes safety, that it's safe to be with the pain. You don't have to talk yourself into it. You don't have to be courageous about it. It's just like, oh, okay, let me, what is this pain like? And immediately you can go closer toward to it. Fear is a thing that pulls us away. Curiosity is a thing that pulls us closer. Yeah. It's, yeah, I could go deeper into elements of that, but that's the baseline why I see it as the opposite. There's a, um, there's a poet, and this actually uh, was mentioned to me by Judson Brewer, who I know you know who that is, and he's been a guest on the show before. He's a huge proponent of curiosity. And so he shared this with me. There's this Irish poet named James Stevens, and he has a quote that says, curiosity will conquer fear even more than bravery will. No way. Where were you when I was writing my book? <laughs> and I was reading that section of the book. And for me, just my experience was, it was so short. I was like, Corey, I need more, more on this. because. But sorry, yeah. wait, who's that quote again? Say that one. That's a good one. It's, uh, it's James Stevens, who is an Irish author, poet. He says, curiosity will conquer fear even more than bravery will. Oh, that is brilliant. I can't believe I didn't find that anywhere. Okay. 
Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. And, <laughs> and so, and so, as we're talking about this, I think again, one of the the key parts of the show is to be able to walk away with maybe some practical strategies or practices. So, if I find myself starting to shut down to the present moment, right, for whatever reason, maybe I'm afraid of something, uh, afraid of repercussion, afraid of rejection, afraid of whatever might be coming up. What do you actually do? What do you do for your for yourself in these moments when that happens? How do you access curiosity? Because I think to some degree that may sound very conceptual, kind of high level. Oh, curiosity—that sounds like a great thing. Like, sure, but actually, practically, what do you say to yourself? What do you do in those moments? Like, what does that look like for you? So, one strategy I talk about in the book is uh, uh, channeling your inner Larry King. And this, one of the things that makes Larry King such a great interviewer is that he's just insatiably curious, uh, and he asks great questions similar to you, Josh. You have that same curiosity. Thanks, man. You're welcome. Um, and so uh, you you can channel your inner Larry King by um, interviewing your own experience and just become deeply curious, like a wall that comes up, and you treat the wall as if it's a guest on your show of life. And so, oh, hey, what's going on? Like, I'd love to get to know you a little bit more. What is it like to be you? What are you experiencing right now? What's what's going on here? And that's something like is great to bring in your meditation practice um, when a strong emotion comes up. You just imagine that you're like sitting at the table with that emotion or that experience or that pain and just getting to know it. The questions can be whatever you'd like them to be. For me in those moments, I immediately drop into my body and become curious about the sensations that are there. So if there's a wall, let's just say it's uh, right. Family stuff runs deep. So uh, sometimes most, most of my triggers these days just get activated when I'm with family. <laughs> I feel like a different person in the world. And then I go back to family context. And I love my family to pieces. Um, but like it, it triggers childlike conditionings, childhood conditionings. And so one of the things I, I often fear uh, feel is like a shutting down at times for a variety of different reasons. And it can happen at the dinner table or just when I observe certain family dynamics going on. And my usual way of protecting myself in those moments, maybe from early childhood, was just to shut down, go numb, get quiet. So when that happens now, instead of being so sucked into it and just kind of riding out that numbness, I immediately feel start to feel okay what is my what is my body doing and notice usually my shoulders are are um, shrunken forward my head's down I'm quiet so I, f- I just first start by noticing like getting curious about that oh that's interesting what am I feeling oh there's a sense of numbness and that's uh that's very helpful in those moments to um, not be caught in it I don't think it's the full story which is why this book isn't just on curiosity I, I will then often ask myself, what would the best version of myself be able to do in this moment? And I find that to be a really powerful question to sort of uh, get me in touch with what I could be embodying in this moment. And so that's a way I might sort of jolt myself out of it, but first connect to what's going on and make space for what's going on. I think that's really important when we're working with some of these deep patterns. Like We're very used to bypassing them or not getting familiar with them and not honoring and re- recognizing the wisdom of them. In that moment, I mean, what a beautiful thing my mind and my body are trying to do. It's like, I feel concerned about this family thing going on right now. I don't know how to help. And it's too painful to be in it. So I kind of just shut down and get numb. 
I love my body for doing that. It's the sweetest little person ever. Like, good job, Corey. Like, I, you're doing the best you can. And I see the younger child in myself just trying to protect protect itself. And that's accompanied with the adult version of myself that doesn't have to default to that anymore. So I want to recognize and honor and l- let little Corey know. It's like, hey, like, I see you. I know you're scared right now, but there's also a different way of being. And I'll I'll kind of coach that younger version of myself with, with the adult version of myself, the the best version of myself. That's not the best language to put on it, but the version of myself that I want to grow into, like that version will work with the younger version and will kind of collaborate to get where we want to go. So that's like more the nitty gritty of kind of how I'll navigate the deeper stuff. I love that. And I think that's a really nice kind of segue into into talking about past conditioning and protection kind of habits we develop maybe when we're young and how we can kind of grow out of those. And I think, and curiosity actually ties into this a little bit. I'll make a connection here. In the book, you talk about the idea or the metaphor of a cow path. And you talk about this as, you know, and I'll let you kind of go into this, but how we develop certain habits, oftentimes earlier on in our life, for various reasons. Sometimes that involves we're trying to protect ourselves for some reason. Sometimes it's just the best, you know, thing we have to do at the time. Uh, or option we have at the time, so on and so forth. But then I think there's this thing happens where we kind of lose our sense of curiosity, where it's like, yeah, I developed this habit when I was like five or 10 years old, and I've just been doing it the same way since. And I haven't really been curious or asking questions. Is this habit outdated? Mm -hmm. Is there maybe a better way of operating? Is there something that's more effective? Is there something I can learn here? Like maybe there's something to, you know, a tie here, a link of bringing curiosity in and, and uh, exploring that a little bit. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the cow paths, introduce that metaphor. And I just think it's so useful for people as a, as a framing for how to kind of question some of our ways of operating in the world and, and maybe growing into that version of ourselves that you describe that we ultimately want to be. Yeah, so the, the story of the cow paths is uh, a story that was first made popular at UMass, um, the Center for Mindfulness, which is now at Brown. And uh, the story goes is that there was a, a boy that lived on this farm and watched these cow like his favorite animals to watch were the cows. And all day long, every day, he'd just watch these cows that go out and they graze and they go to one far corner of the, the farm. And then at the end of the day, they knew t- they needed to get back to the barn because that's where it was safe. But they couldn't make a straight line because there were a lot of obstacles. There were trees, there was a river, there were rocks, there were bushes. So the cows had to make this long, windy path around the trees, around the river, avoid the rocks, avoid the bushes. It took them a lot longer to get back, but eventually they got back to safety. And they did this every single day over and over. He watched this for like 20 years. Then he went away, sold, uh, parents sold the farm. And about 20 years later, he says, man, I'd love to go back there. I wonder if it's still there. And he found out that it was. So he goes back to visit, sees that the farm's still there, the animals are still there, and the cows are still there. And can you guess what was happening? The cows were still walking the same cow path. But the trees were gone. The rivers were, the river was dried up. The rocks were gone. The bushes were gone. The cows could have made a straight line to where they wanted to go, but they were still walking in the same path. So in the same way, we are very much like these cows where we've we put patterns, behaviors in place at a certain point in time that served us very well. Uh, the classic example could be um, a young boy that grows up in an alcoholic household when he fears hears his father coming home late at night from the bar. He knows it could potentially mean danger, so he locks the door, hides under the covers at age five. 
that point, that's probably the, the best defense that he has that he's able to do. So there's fear that arises and then uh, isolation, hiding. 20 years later, not in the household anymore. Father's not there anymore goes to apply for a job, starts to feel some fear in relationship to doing the job interview and reflexively just cancels the interview or doesn't show up at all, goes home, kind of goes in his room and and plays video games. Not going to hide under the covers, but you could see the same response arise, fear and then isolation withdrawing. So it's an example of a cow pet that once served him in a positive way, but is no longer serving him. And we all have these. And a big part of waking up and deepening into presence, deepening into mindfulness is starting to see what are these cowpads we've accumulated over time that we don't even know we're walking. Because you ask the cows, why are you walking on a cow path? They're going to say, what are you talking about? Assuming cows could speak English. Uh, They're like, yeah, that, that cow path you're walking. It's like, no, that's just how I get back to the barn. It's like, no, but you're like doing this and you're going all the way around. Yeah, but what are you talking about? This whole like loopy thing. That's just what I do. Right. And so how often do we just take things as like, this is just who I am or this is just what I do. And even things like in the realm of like, I'm just being authentic to myself might be more being authentic to a part of yourself that was created a very long time ago and doesn't necessarily need to be who you actually are. So the first step is just bringing awareness to these these cow paths arise organically as we bring more awareness to our lives. And once we start to see them, it's like, oh, every time I get invited to go out to see a movie, I make an excuse and I, you know, stay home. It's like, oh, that's interesting. That that looks like it might be a cow path. What happens in those moments? Oh, someone invites me out. And then I feel a little bit of fear. And then you start looking closer. Your mind goes, ah, I'm not going to be able to make small talk and it's going to feel awkward. And then you say, ah, I can't do it anyway. It's like, oh, that's interesting. So now instead of it just being like I'm I'm an introvert or I like my alone time, it's like maybe there's a little bit more going on. The more that we see that, the more we can actually start doing something about it and shifting those cow paths over time. Fantastic. I know we only have about 10 minutes left. I'm going to kind of switch gears here a little bit. One of the things I've I've so appreciated about your teachings, I've been on retreat with you, some of your workshops, so on and so forth, is how well you translate these practices for modern life and the pace of modern life and how you practically get at strategies that we can integrate into daily life and the busyness of daily life. And particularly, you know, a lot of people may, and I've seen this happen in your retreats, like, Corey, this was so great. But being on retreat, it's like this special environment. We're here. This is the only focus. Now I'm going to go back and, you know, and life happens. Right. And so the question is always, how do I keep this going? How do I, how do I get started with a meditation practice or how do I continue or these sorts of things? And there are two pieces and I'll, I want to come back to the kind of like, um, getting started with a practice in a minute, but leading into that, you, one of the offerings from the book was around practice more than you think you can. And I want to come back to, if we circle back to the beginning of the interview and you started talking about, you know, as you deepened your practice, some of the benefits you really started to experience um, through the process of writing the book and looking at it as a practice and just kind of deepening your practice. I remember being on the golf course with you, it's rambling a little bit, but it will come back around. We're on the golf course and uh, for people that don't know, we're both, we both love the game of golf. And we usually connect over that. And compete. Or, uh, yeah. And compete. <laughs> Gets competitive yes. out there. Um, 
but you were talking about it. it was at that point in time where you had just you know started deepening your practice into three hours a day and you talk about this in the book i won't go deep into it but you were sharing with me that day just you know all of these benefits you were experiencing and how it was bringing kind of a freshness to your life and how you felt more alive and compassionate and just you know the list went on and in the book you say something like you know a couple of weeks after you started really deepening in and diving three hours into practice a day that's when you fell in love or that's when you met your girlfriend and before that it's much more difficult you said in parentheses you can ask me about that later <laughs> and i'm like okay well here we are it's later so maybe we could talk a little bit about that about some of the benefits of depth of practice mm-hmm. um three hours could seem like there's no way and maybe there is no way for people but even going more than they think they might be capable of just a little bit stretching themselves and maybe a, a little bit of the story about how you met brianna who's actually been brianna booth um as a doctor of uh, human sexuality, I believe, or yeah. positive sexuality. And she's been on the show before. She's a great conversation. Uh, you can check out. But a little bit of story on that too. Yeah. Um, good question. So the idea of practicing m- more than you think you can, and a lot can fall into practice. Uh, generally, it's referring to meditation practice, but in the book, I offer tons of different practices you could do that aren't just meditation. But the idea is that Right. One of my prescriptions is just meditate one minute a day. And it's a great way to opt into something with low barriers to entry. The one issue that can come up with that is sometimes one minute isn't enough or even a few minutes isn't enough to start to experience the actual benefits of the practice. So the reason the reason anything doesn't make it, its way into our lives is just simply because it's not a priority. And something becomes a priority when we start seeing that's very important. And sometimes practicing more than you think you can allows you to see the benefits of this, which makes it more important, which makes it a priority. So I tell people to, if you think you could only do two minutes, do four. If you think you could do 10, do 20. If you think you could do 20, do 40. If you think you could do two hours, try four hours. And I've literally recommended that to someone, some guy that's retired and meditates two hours. I'm like, I'm not impressed. I'm more impressed with the person that has like five kids and three jobs and they're meditating five minutes a day. You're telling me you're doing two hours and you have the whole rest of your day, do four hours. <laughs> we have a good relationship. I could say that. Um, and he did. Uh, so it's it's just wherever you're at. And I, what I tried to do a number of years ago, and what I did do was basically deepen my practice from about 30 minutes a day to three hours a day. And I made a commitment um, to do that three hours and find a way to fit in. And I just made it the priority in my life. Granted, wasn't married no kids. Uh, so there are things that make that feasible for those of you that are like, no way I'm going to fit, fit three hours in. I get it. Um, but for me, that felt like it could be realistic within the confines of my life. And I did. And um, and just like very quickly, all these great benefits started to happen. I just felt so much more calm in my life. Uh, the little things that used to pull me off my center just like didn't touch me at all. Um, other things like when I would be looking at, at my Uber app and when I was calling the Uber driver and you know how you could see their car and where they're going and sometimes the car goes in the opposite direction. And you're like, God, oh, what are you doing? <laughs> I, I got very sensitive to all these ways that my heart would shut down. Like that would be a form of my heart shutting down, I'd say. 
and I could catch it and I could immediately get spacious again and be like, oh, it's okay. It's like, it's not your fault, (laughs) Uh, which sounds like a little thing, but the accumulation of that throughout the day, like catching all the ways that I kind of get small and self-centered and being able to open, I just felt like I was walking on clouds all day in a, in a very embodied way, not in like a transcendent way, but just like feeling everything grounded, calm. And yeah, some weird manifestation stuff started to happen as well, including um, meeting my current partner, Brianna. We, we met each other two weeks after that, and I meditated three hours uh, a day for two weeks up into that, including the day that I met her. And I was just in this very receptive, open, loving place. And uh, so I don't talk too much about a manifestation just because I don't fully understand it. And I think it can get a little woo woo. But there, there is something to when you meet and soften deep internal blocks within yourself that could be preventing you from, I won't use the word attracting because I don't like that word, but, but moving toward and feeling like you're worthy of certain experiences or people or things. And a practice, a deeper practice helps us get in touch with what some of those walls are and start to soften some of those walls. And I think organically things start flowing more to us. That's the, I was going to say the material side of it, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a material, like relationships too and um, all the things and love, connection. Yeah. So I do want to be respectful of time. I'll ask you kind of one final question, which I always ask people. And this question is more around, you know, kind of getting away from quick fixes, but more getting into maybe an offering or a practice or um, something you might invite listeners to do. And the question is, if somebody's out there and they are wanting to be more courageous, more compassionate, or we'll use this, more deeply present, to their own life. You've offered a lot here today. What would be one final, is there anything that comes to mind as kind of a final offering around that? Two things. Nothing is excluded. You start wherever you're at. Even if that's, I don't want to be present, you could be present to that. So the resistance, um, the confusion, the chaos, like it all gets welcomed into awareness. So don't worry about having the deep experience, the profound thing. It's just where are you at right now and can you meet that fully? That's where we start to, to access presence. And curiosity. Curiosity is a whole game. If, if we could condense the four pillars into one, it would be curiosity. I see my meditation practice as sitting down and being curious. It, it is the thing that connects us to our experience, takes us deeper into our experience, and cultivates wisdom around our experience. And that's the whole game. Corey, it's, it's always such a pleasure, man. I, I just really enjoy sitting, chatting with you, and could do this for the rest of the day. But we do have to call time here. Um, so if people want to find the book, find more practices, follow your work, how to, what's the best way to do that? Yeah. Um, you can text your email address to plus one six three one four zero five four six three one and you will get an automated email with book recommendations, app recommendations, um, and links to a bunch of my stuff. I have a daily podcast called Practicing Human, um, short 10 minute episodes every day, uh, 
you could that's a, a great free way to follow along and supplement what you're doing with this podcast but again just text uh, your email address to plus one six three one four zero five four six three one and you'll get all of those resources and uh and the book stop missing your life how to be deeply present in an unpresent world that is available wherever books are sold and i'd love for you to read it put a lot of my heart into it and uh and once you do read it, send me a message on Instagram or something. Let me know how it went. I'd love to hear your feedback. Corey, it's been a pleasure, man. Thanks, Josh. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Courageous Life. I'd like to extend special thanks, as always, to my executive producer, Matt Donner, for all of the incredible behind-the-scenes work he does to make this show sound great. He's also responsible for composing the original music, that you hear at the beginning and the end of every episode. Also, if you're enjoying the show and the conversation, please do share with friends because I believe that courage is contagious. And while you're at it, if you happen to be on iTunes, make sure you click the subscribe button or if you feel so compelled, leave a positive review. It encourages me to keep going and also helps others to find a valuable show amidst the many podcasts that are out there. Until next time, this is Joshua Steinfeld with The Courageous Life.